We're continuing in this series, Spiritual Warfare and Deliverance. Uh, we're in the 300 section. And in this section, we've been talking about um, the, the tactics or strategies of the devil um, that he uses against three different levels of society. The first that we talked about a few weeks ago was an in, the, the schemes, tactics, and strategies he brings against individuals. Okay, He has plans, tactics, and strategies against individual people. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the strategies of the devil um, corporately against church families. So he has strategies against groups of people, the church. He hates the church. He wants to destroy the church. Um, The church is his enemy in the earth. The church is the only thing standing between him and total world domination. And so um, it's a big deal. Revelation, what is it, uh, 12, 19, somewhere in there. Revelation, it talks about those who, my wife's like, are you talking to me? I'm like, look it up. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but it's, it says he, he goes off to make war against those who believe in Jesus. That's us. That's the church. He, it's who he's making war against. And so it's a big deal. And then the next one, probably next week, we'll talk about the cultural or national societal uh, strategies that he has because he has them. And so uh, 2 Corinthians 2.11 says that uh, we need to be aware of Satan's schemes. We're not unaware of his schemes. The word schemes there is the Greek word noema. It means his evil purpose. It means the end goal. We talked about this last time. I'm reviewing for those of you who missed it. Ephesians 6.11 says put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Same English word, different Greek word. This word in Greek is the word methodia, and it's the specific strategies and tactics, methodias that he uses to accomplish his noemas, which is the end purpose and goal. And so as we talk about in this section of this series, uh, the different uh, levels that he has strategies against, we're going to first, I'm going to tell you his end goal, which with each one, and then I'm going to talk about the methods, specific methods and strategies that he uses to accomplish that end goal. Okay. And then we're going to talk about the weapons of our warfare, the strategia that God has given us in the Greek, the church. God has methods, tactics, and strategies, and weapons that correspond, things for us to do, literally to do, that come against these specific strategies of the enemy. So one of these days in the future, maybe I'll do like one of those charts where it's like this strategy goes with this strategy. You know, like that's what I'm talking about. Draw. We'll do a quiz, and you have to draw which one goes to which one, right? No, we won't. Okay, but... Maybe we will. So 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4 says, Though we live in the world, we don't wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. The KJV renders that weapons of our warfare. That word in Greek is strategia. We don't just have one weapon. It's plural. God has weapons and strategies for us to use. Okay? So when we're talking about corporate warfare, the strategies the enemy brings against bodies of Christ, local churches or the church at large. Okay. What is his no aima, his end goal? His end goal is to disable and destroy the church. He hates the church. He wants to totally destroy it. That's his end goal, right? So his goal is really to destroy the church. But as I've prayed into this, studied into this, thought into this, Uh, I've realized that, you know, if a church is walking in first love communion with Jesus, if a church is unified, if a church is doing what Jesus has called them to do in the earth, man, that's a strong church, and he is not going to be able to destroy that church. Praise God, right? 
if we are doing what he's called us to do. So in, before he can destroy a church, he has to disable the church. To disable means to make powerless, to, to, to make impotent. Do you know what impotent means? It means there's no power there. And so he needs to weaken the church and make it powerless to remove all of its warfare systems, to remove all of the, its strategia, the weapons of its warfare, so that then he can come in and do whatever he wants to totally destroy that church. And so I'm going to talk about these two main end goals tonight. First, we're going to talk about his strategy to disable the church. And then once the church is disabled or, you know, uh, hurting, you could say, you know, um, if you think of it as a body, we're the body of Christ. And so he's looking to like, boom, take our legs out, take our arms out, you know, handicap us. Now I can come in and destroy it. That's what I'm saying, okay? So first I want to talk about how he disables, and then we're going to talk about how he moves in for the kill to destroy, okay? And I wrote this in my notes. This is a prophetic word, I believe, from the Lord Jesus. To disable us, he goes after our beliefs. But to destroy us, he goes after our relationships. I'll say that one more time. To disable us, he goes after our beliefs. To destroy us, to move in for the kill, he goes after our relationships. So, first end goal is to disable the church. How does he do this? Usually through false beliefs that either pollute or dilute the gospel and thereby limit faith or cause us to live in unbelief, all the while thinking, hey, I love God and and I'm doing what God calls me to do. Okay? And so we touched on this last time when we talked about individual uh, warfare. And unbelief was one of the strategies he uses against people. It's the difference between believing in God versus believing God. And so James says, if you believe in God, but you don't obey God, faith without deeds is dead, right? He says, even demons believe in God and shudder. So if you believe in God, but don't obey God, that's called unbelief. Your faith is at the level of demonic, okay? And so um, he's working beliefs, what the Bible calls fine-sounding arguments and doctrines of demons. Did you know demons have a strategy to get ideas in pastors and churches' heads, get them to believe it and agree with it to where they preach it to their churches thinking they're preaching the truth, but it's really from a demon. Did you know that? That's what I'm talking about here, church. And so I'm going to give you a framework tonight to know what's up and to know uh, what is of the Lord and what's not of the Lord. We need to be able to rightly divide the word of God, right? We need to uh, be able to discern and not just know what the word says, the Bible says, but to how, how to interpret. What's our framework? And I'm going to give you that tonight. So 1 Timothy 4.1, it says, The Spirit clearly says in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. I love the KGV's rendering of this. And they, and doct- they will leave the faith and, and leave to follow doctrines of demons. All right? That's just a, that's got a good ring to it. We preachers love things. Alliteration starts with the same letter. That's like a book that maybe I'll write or somebody's already written. Doctrines of demons. Man, that's like, that's like a heavy metal band. Doctrines of demons. Okay. All right. Did you hear what I said, though? The Spirit clearly says in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons, doctrines of demons. I would argue that this, it's not talking about people leaving the faith, church, to go follow other religions. 
I believe he's talking about leaving true gospel faith to go follow false Christianity. Colossians 2, 2 through 4, it says it this way. My goal is that uh, they may be, he's talking about church, churches, uh, may be encouraged in heart, united in love, so they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order, we need to have complete understanding, why? That may, we may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Why do we need to know the mystery of Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? Not just he died on a cross for you. We need to understand God. We need to understand the fullness of God to every nook and cranny and how it applies to every single detail of our lives. Why? Why, Paul? Next verse. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Fine-sounding arguments means it sounds true. It, the, the, another uh, translation says, well-crafted arguments. Well-crafted. It sounds good. If it didn't sound good, no one would believe them. But here's the question we have to ask. What is the source of these beliefs? When we start to base our theology on, or spiritual practices on our assumptions or our own culture rather than scripture, we're in trouble. That's a sign that it could be a doctrine of a demon. Demons planting thoughts, teachings in churches. It sounds good. Listen to me, church. Oh, my goodness. It, this is really good. I'm reading it verbatim out of my notes, right? It sounds good because our culture will affirm and applaud it. Therefore, that's why it's a fine-sounding argument. It only sounds good to me. I know it's going to sound good to everybody else I know, whether they're a Christian or not. And by the way, just a plug for next sermon, that's why the devil has a cultural strategy against societies and nations to pass laws and create arts cultures that defile and cause whole countries to have mindsets that are contrary to God. So here's some examples, and I'm going to try to summarize a whole sermon series that I did in December. And it was, a, it was a sermon series on the book of Galatians. And if what I'm about to say, if you want more info on all this or more teaching, uh, this past December, December 2022, um, I did a three-week series on the book of Galatians. We covered two chapters every week. And I showed this every week, this, this chart I'm about to show you, <laughs> charts and graphs. It's not flannel, but it's next best thing. <laughs> um, and this was a framework God gave me to understand erroneous teaching. And the book of Galatians is about contending for a true gospel versus a false gospel. It, we're not talking about Jesus versus Hinduism or Buddhism or Islam. We're talking about true Jesus versus false Jesus. Golden, we're talking about true Christianity versus golden calf Christianity. Oh, this is the God that brought us out of Egypt. Oh, this is Jesus and it's a golden calf and God hates it and it's idolatrous, and it's wrong. And so you have the cross in the middle. This is Jesus full of grace and truth. It's the narrow way. It's called narrow for a reason, okay? And mostly, what I'm gonna, three major categories of erroneous teaching we're gonna cover really quickly, okay? Uh, first of all, to your left, my right, is uh, we have what I would call legalism, which is also, you could call traditionalism. Biblical example is the Pharisees. This is high on truth, low on grace. What happens is it pollutes 
the gospel of Jesus because it adds to it, which is offensive to God. So it adds rules or traditions to be quote unquote right with God. This pollutes the true gospel. Okay. And so in the Old Testament, you, you had the Pharisees saying, no, even in the new, new Covenant, New Testament, you had Pharisee Christians saying, you have to become Jewish first and get circumcised. That's what the book of Galatians is all about. They had the Acts 15 Jerusalem Council to solve that issue, right? And they rendered, no, you don't have to become Jewish first to become Christian. It is by, by grace we're saved through faith. That's, I'm getting ahead of myself. That's Ephesians 2 up there. Um, not by works so no one can boast. And so traditions and, and circumcision, right? But what about in our culture? You have to dress right. You don't dress right. You know, the church, you know, you, you're a casual church. You don't, you, don't dress, you don't dress up for God. You're not right with God, right? You're not showing reverence. Style of music, translation of the Bible, day of week for what church? Celebrating the right holidays, church, Christian churches are still, there's some of them start getting into this. And I believe it starts from a good place wanting to honor God. I'm like, no, we really need to celebrate the seven Jewish festivals. And if you celebrate Christmas, oh, you, you, you're an apostate Christian. Oh, if you celebrate Christmas, you guys haven't heard this. Have you met some of these people? I have. They call me a heretic and we get into it. But anyways, I'm super nice and loving. <laughs> I'm not going to say it. Okay, all right. This is a thing still, right? The Seventh-day Adventists, we must worship on Saturdays. I'm right. I'm not trying to criticize them. I believe they're part of the family of God. I'm just saying there are Christians who are like, if I don't worship on a Saturday, maybe some of you are here. If I don't worship on a Saturday, I'm not right with God. That's really, really, if you add anything to the blood of Jesus, you've just offended Father God. Because what if you add anything, anything to being right with God, it's a salvation issue, and it's other than the blood of Jesus. You've just said to Jesus, oh, thanks for sweating blood on my behalf in Gethsemane and dying on the cross, but it wasn't enough. I need to do some extra things. It's offensive. And that read the book of Galatians, right? I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves, right? Because circumcision was the issue of their day. He's like, that's offensive, okay? And so... It's high on truth, low on grace, and, and I won't get into that yet. So that's, so what are the scriptures? Again, the Bible has all truth we need for life and godliness. So we can't just pay attention to the scriptures that seem really, oh, you know, high fear of the Lord and oh, you better obey and blah, blah, blah. And that's where legalistic people, they use that a lot to, to honestly get people to, to buy into this stuff. Here's my definition of legalism. Making a rule about anything that the Bible doesn't make. As soon as you make a rule about it and say you're not right with God unless, and the Bible doesn't make that rule, that's legalism, okay? So there's freedom. There's freedom for churches and individuals to interpret and to live by their conscience how they believe God wants them to. So what are the scriptures that pull us back and guard us, the guardrails, pull us back from this, back to the center narrow way? Ephesians 2, it's by grace we're saved. Colossians 2, therefore do not let anyone judge you with regard to a Sabbath or a new day or, 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 or a, a new moon or a festival. What day you worship on and how you view the holidays. Don't let people judge you on it. Don't let other believers that are too far over here tell you you're not a real Christian because you don't worship on the right day of the week or because you don't dress right or the church you go to doesn't play the right kind of music or you don't have the right translation of the Bible. 
Because the original Greek and Hebrew does not say you have to have the right translation to be right with God. Are you tracking with me? All right. Whew. Galatians 4, it's for freedom. Or read those verses in Galatians. They'll get you back here. All right. So over here, we have liberalism. This is a big deal. I believe the pendulum has swung. We used to be over here in the church in America in the, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, I don't know. But now the pendulum swung. Now we're over here. How do I know that? Because a majority of Christians now believe the Bible's not fully true. A majority of Christians now believe sexual immorality is okay with God. LGBT lifestyles are okay with God. It's okay to live with someone before you marry them. As long as you plan on marrying them, that's okay with God. Majority of Christians now believe this. Majority. This is where the church is heading to. This is golden calf Christianity I was talking about. No, Jesus is fine with it. This is Jesus. No, it's not. All religions are equally valid. There's no really eternal judgment and everybody will eventually go to heaven, okay? That's high on grace. They just, oh, I don't want you to feel bad, right? High on grace, low on truth. What are the scriptures that pull us back? 1 Corinthians 6, do not be deceived. And then he lists a whole bunch of sins. People, excuse me, people committing these sins will not go to heaven. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. That means they won't go to heaven, guys. That's what that means, Okay? Hebrews 10, if you keep on sinning after you've received knowledge of the truth, you keep on living in sin and thinking it's okay, you're trampling the Son of God underfoot, you're insulting the Spirit of grace. That's what the Bible says. And there's no salvation left because you have insulted the blood that bought you. So to think, well, I said a prayer and I got saved, I can live totally immoral and offend God the rest of my life and still go to heaven. You are deceived. That is wrong. That is a doctrine of a demon. It's not the word of God. Hebrews 9, 2 Corinthians 5 and 10 speak to this, pulling us back. Matthew 7 speaks of eternal judgment, the separating of the sheep and goats, and a whole lot of people are going to go to hell. That's just what the Bible says whole lot of people. And we need to believe it. We need to believe it. Whole lot of people going to hell. Does that strike fear in your heart? Does that break your heart? Does that mess you up that you don't deserve it and you know you didn't deserve it, but you have come to a knowledge of the truth. You received his grace. You know you're going. That should mess you up. But to believe that the demons want you to believe all this not true stuff, because if you believe all this, guess what? You live however you want. You don't live in the fear of the Lord. And the moment you start to use his grace as a license to sin is the exact moment you've stepped over here and you're in danger of judgment. And I want to encourage you, if that's you, as long as you have breath in your lungs, there's still hope. You can turn to him. He will forgive you. But you got to get back to the foot of this right here. And you need to repent. Go read those scriptures and they'll pull you back. And then the third main category of erroneous doctrines of demons in our day and age and throughout church history is cessationism, which is the Holy Spirit is not doing what he did in scripture. That was just for the apostles. You know, he's not doing that. First of all, there's not one verse in scripture that supports that. Show me, show me scripture, scripture that, that teaches that. And that's a problem. And I'm about to show you why it's a problem. 
These beliefs will disable a church and render it impotent. You'll have a, a form of godliness, but you'll deny the power of God. They'll be lukewarm churches. They won't reach people for Christ, and the people in them are just going to go through a religious routine, but there aren't, they aren't seeking to passionately live for God every day, to seek the kingdom first, to see the kingdom come on earth as in heaven. The devil has no problem with the church being in a community if that church is powerless, buying into his lies, and therefore having absolutely no effect. The devil has no problem with a church that has lost its saltiness and is so deceived by the masquerading of light that they, prof that, that they profess to be the light while agreeing with the darkness. He loves it when a church is proclaiming light that is actually false light because in thinking they're promoting the gospel, they're just promoting his lies. I'll say it this way. Churches like that, you're the best player on his team. I'm a very competitive person. I like to win right? It's just important to have fun. Yeah. And winning is fun and losing sucks, right? We all know that. And I don't take it easy on my kids because I'm training for the real world. And so when we play games, I destroy them and it's well known in our household, right? I'm not going to take it easy on you. And it's fun. And only I would never joke this way with people I don't know that well because I don't want them to think I'm serious and get all offended and hurt. And I don't mean it as a word curse or anything like that. But with my family and those who know me well, when, when I'm or my team is dominating in a competitive thing and another person on the other team, I say this to my wife a lot, is like the reason the other team is losing, like they keep messing up or they keep giving us points or whatever. I'll, I'll look at that person. Let's say it's my wife in this case. And I'm like, wow, babe, you're the best player on our team. I, just, oh, I love to trash talk and just rub it in, you know. You're the best player on our team. That's how the devil feels about legalistic Christians who preach condemnation and progressive Christians who say all faiths are valid and LGBT lifestyles are okay with God and we all get to go to heaven. He just sits back and goes, wow, somebody get these people more influence. Get them a radio program. Somebody get that guy on Oprah. Hey, Beelzebub, go get that guy on Oprah. <laughs> We need to get his message out. He's the best player on our team. Because they're so diluting the true gospel. It sounds so good to so many people. And they think they already have Jesus, but they're really just believing the devil's lies. He thinks that's great. 2 Timothy 2, verse 25 and 26. Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and they'll come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who's taken them captive to do his will. So what is the strategy, godly strategies and weapons of our warfare that God has given us to combat this tactic of the devil? Two main ones. Number one is truth, the word of God, and the second one is the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and not just knowing about them, but receiving them and using them. And I'm gonna unpack this. Number one, truth, it, it's pretty obvious why. If you noticed, for each of those, all these things, right, both sides can say the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible says. Here's what we have to do. The Bible also says, the Bible also says, the Bible also says. Taking one verse out of context and making a whole teaching or a whole lifestyle or a whole church nomination out of it is a huge mistake. You need to consider the full counsel of the word of God. And it, and it teaches you not only what you should believe in general, but even about situational beliefs for certain situations and how do I respond to this, right? And so 
we need to know the Bible inside and out, and the Bible speaks to all these things. It has all the issues of life and godliness for us, okay? And so I'm going to, the Bible, the Bible, the Bible, the truth, the truth, the truth, 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 truth. Okay, I want to talk about, I want to spend more time talking about spiritual gifts and the strategy and why they're so powerful and why when cessationism is so dangerous and partners with these other two categories. So when we talk about spiritual gifts, we tend to focus on prophecy, tongues, miracles, healing, because they're the ones that are atrophied in our culture today, which is absolutely true. Um, Most yeah, most churches willingly accept, practice, and know the value of teaching helps leadership gifts, right? Even cessationist churches will be like, oh, yeah, you have a gift of teaching. This <laughs> doesn't make any sense. But um, it's intellectually dishonest, I should say, <laughs> uh, to say, oh, yeah, you have the gift of helps, gifts of service, gifts of teaching. But, oh, oh the tongues, that ceased. <laughs> um, God gave me a word in the Spirit when I was baptized in the Spirit last year. <laughs> so funny. Oh gosh. Um, and I'm paraphrasing what, what he said through me. But the reason he has chosen to build up the church through spiritual gifts is because it keeps his people from becoming Pharisees. Because only when we enter his kingdom as little children with the faith of a child will we humbly accept the operation of the gifts that offend our wisdom, such as tongues or prophecy, to be the strange work of God. This humility of heart keeps us humble when we read scripture and when we go to judging one another or judging things in the earth. Do you understand what I'm saying? If you do, please nod, because you're staring at me blankly right now. God has chosen spiritual gifts to be kind of a litmus test for the church. Notice he gave them at first. If we reject spiritual gifts, our faith becomes purely intellectual. And if, that, if our faith is purely intellectual, we will become Pharisees. And we just become Bible-only Christians, and then we just argue about the Bible all day. A Christian that's humble enough to go, man, this tongues thing is weird. Oh, what is happening? But you have a humble mindset to go, I don't know, but the Bible says it's God, so maybe I don't know everything, and I just need to be humble and wait and see how this pans out and see if there's fruit. And the person that has that humble of a mindset will have that humble mindset when they read the rest of Scripture, when they do ministry. It's about humility. It's about entering the kingdom like a child. On the flip side, now think about this. Do you know who's not into the Holy Spirit or spiritual gifts? Can you put that? Yeah, that's still up there. Good. Legalistic Christians. (laughs) You know why? Because it requires too much faith and trust of the Holy Spirit so they can't control the people, control God or people who operate in spiritual gifts. You know who else is not into Holy Spirit or or spiritual gifts? Progressive churches. (laughs) Because it's offensive to the mindset of the atheistic culture which they are so concerned with being approved by. So when we do not forbid speaking in tongues and do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them, we humble ourselves to trusting Holy Spirit to build up God's church. Did you hear what I said? We trust ourselves, we trust the Holy Spirit to build up God's church. Is it, is it interesting to you that, I don't know about you, and I've not, I, 
I'll just say this is my personal witness. I think it is a statement of absolute truth. I w- I, I, we need to do studies. You know, we need to do a study on this. <laughs> but in my personal experience, and I've been a part of lots of different kinds of churches. I'm a spiritual mutt, right? I grew up in an independent Protestant denomination that was cessationist. I went to a Wesleyan college. They're not cessationist, but they're not super charismatic either. <laughs> you know, um, I, I've been involved with Baptist churches. I've now we're a very, what I would call, you know, somebody's like, what kind of church are you? Well, we're a Protestant, evangelistic, non-denominational, charismatic church. <laughs> so what was I saying? Oh, yeah. This is what I've noticed amongst the breadth of the the kingdom of God. Churches with the most vibrant prayer lives and prayer ministries are Holy Spirit churches. Y'all ever notice that? They pray more than anybody. And they mean it. And they're the churches that'll be like, oh, something bad's going on? Let me pray for you. And you're just, you're getting a hand laid on you before you even know what's happening. All right? And they have prayer meetings as part of their rhythm of church. And they pray in the service, and they just pray, pray, pray. It's almost like they believe the scriptures that we should be devoted to prayer and always keep on praying in the spirit, so on and so on. What kinds of churches also have the most powerful deliverance or Holy Spirit or uh, spiritual warfare ministries? Holy Spirit-filled churches. (laughs) Because good luck fighting the devil without the help of the Holy Spirit. Good luck fighting the devil without the power of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of discerning of spirits and tongues. Good luck doing spiritual warfare without those spiritual gifts and believing in the Holy Spirit and the prophetic. Emphasizing the use of spiritual gifts causes discipleship in people to connect with the Holy Spirit for themselves, which is essential to having a vibrant prayer life being filled by the Spirit in prayer, being led by the Spirit. The Bible tells us to be led by the Spirit. How are you going to do that if you don't know how to discern what is the Holy Spirit speaking to you and leading you? And how are you going to do that if the church you're part of never talks about it? And if they speak against it. And so, man, go read Ephesians 4. When when he says, the context is, Christ has given gifts to the church to build them up. He starts with spiritual gifts. Then he goes into leadership uh, roles, the fivefold ministry, which those are spiritual gifts, but they're also roles like leadership roles. And then he moves in and says, this is the body building itself up in love as each part does its work. He's talking about how does the body of Christ get built up when we use, when we all use the spiritual gifts that God's given us, go overlay, go read Ephesians 4 and compare it to 1 Corinthians 12. Now to each one, a manifestation of the spirit is given. That's spiritual gifts for the building up of the body of Christ. And so if we only accept or receive helps and teaching gifts, (laughs) there's a reason we don't have the full complete understanding of the knowledge of the mystery of Christ. There's a reason why we're being deceived by fine sounding arguments. Because legalists are not, they don't know how to flow in the grace of God because they, they're, they're not, they haven't learned how to trust the Holy Spirit because it's too scary and faith is all about intellectualism. So we, we end up over here. 
And this side over here is puffed up and prideful and believes their own opinions more than the word of God. And they want the culture to think well of them. And the culture thinks Holy Spirit is weird. So we're not going to get too into that. And we're not going to operate in those spiritual gifts. That's what's going on at a spiritual level. And that's why cessationism took root in the first place. And that's why it's really attractive. All right. So I'm going to say about all of that because I've got a lot more to cover. So this is how he gets us to buy into these teachings to render a church weak and powerless. And once that church is bought into some of these things, whatever that looks like in a given church, now it's weak. Now it's not being built up in love through the use of the uh, spiritual gifts, the fullness of them. Now there's some weak spots in this church. Maybe the church is strong in a few places, right? I mean... Yeah, Holy Spirit says I can say it. I was, I was like, is this true? Should I say this? If I was going to err one way, I would, I would err on the legalist side, right? Why? Because they know the Bible really well, all right? At least they're living in the fear of God, all right? Whew. But every church has its weak spots. And if he gets you, and we can all, it, it's a scale, all right? It's not all or nothing, right? There's times where in my life where I've drifted towards legalism. There's times in my life where I've drifted over here. And, and then I read those other scriptures. I'm like, no, well, that's wrong. I, gotta, I need to repent and get back to the foot of the cross and the purity of the gospel, right? But once he gets you believing some of these wrong things, now there's weak spots. Now I'm going to move in for the kill. What's the kill? To destroy. How is he going to destroy? And that's what I'm going to spend the rest of our time talking about. This is really his end goal. And the main tactic or strategy the devil uses to destroy churches is division. Jesus said, he was speaking about the kingdom of darkness. A house divided cannot stand, Mark 3, 25. A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided cannot stand. He was speaking about the devil's kingdom. But it's an absolute statement of truth. It is a spiritual principle or axiom, always true. If a church family is divided, that church will not stand. It will crumble. It will fall at some point. Because a divided house cannot stand. Well, Jesus said that. That's gospel truth. Straight from the mouth of God himself in the flesh. The devil knows that. So the devil's main strategy to destroy churches is to divide them. So how does the devil... Divide churches. Remember, to disable us, he goes after our beliefs. And to destroy us, he goes after our relationships. So he's going to go after relationships of people. So what are the main tactics and strategies he uses to cause division? I had three, but we've kind of talked about one of them. The first one I talked about, or I was going to talk about, is causing us to be divided over what Romans 14 calls disputable matters. And Amber Newman preached a great sermon last week about church unity, and she touched on this. I like to use the terminology national boundaries versus state boundaries in Christianity. National boundaries are the essentials of Christianity that if you start to negate these things, you move outside of the country of Christianity, and now you're either a cult, you're a Christian cult of some sort, you're not true Christian, or you're, you're just not Christian, right? You, you, you're not true Christianity if you move outside the national boundaries. 
And if you think of it like America, right? But within the, the national boundary of America, you've got all the states and their state boundaries. And how many of you know California is very different than Ohio? Praise the Lord Jesus. Ohio is very different. Amen? But it's still America. God bless us all, right? So read Romans 14. It, the first verse of Romans 14 says, stop arguing with each other over disputable matters. He goes on to say, whatever you believe about disputable matters, keep between yourself and God. Because the devil will get you to view matters that are secondary, that are non-essential to your salvation or to the, what Christianity is, and will get you to divide yourself from church families you're supposed to be a part of. This is why there's so many denominations. Because we don't have a accepting enough view of secondary matters. And so, man, I took it out of my notes. I, did, I thought I was just going to skip all this, but um, I'll just say it from memory best I can. But so national boundaries of Christianity, the divinity of Jesus, he is God. That was the biggest argument in the fourth century when they had the Nicene Creed. And that was an argument in Jesus' day as well. The Gnostic, you know, he didn't come in the flesh and all this stuff. Or he's not truly God. He was just a good teacher. No. And so the Nicene Creed is a good creed. It, it lays out the, base, the national boundaries of Christianity. The divinity of Jesus, right? Um, goodness gracious. I, sh I wish I'd left this in my notes. <sighs> the person, the salvation of grace by faith, not by works so that no one can boast. Um, you know, virgin birth. Yeah, life, death, and work of Jesus. Oh, authority of Scripture, inerrancy of Scripture. Um, these are the major tenets of Christian faith. If you start to mess, the biggest thing is the person and work of Jesus. If you start to mess with that, you're moving outside those national boundaries, okay? That's why Jehovah's Witnesses and, and uh, LDS Mormons, they're considered by most Protestant and Catholic believers to be Christian cults. Why is that? Because they mess with the person, work, and divinity of Jesus. Quick example, Mormons don't believe that, or LDS doesn't believe that Jesus' blood covers all sin. So there's some sin that's too bad that you have to do some extra things to pay for on this earth. That's just an example. Forget about Book of Mormon and all of Joseph Smith stuff, which is totally not of God. I'm just saying the person and work of Jesus, they have diminished Warning, warning, Will Robinson, all right? Don't get involved in that, okay? Same with Jehovah's Witnesses. We don't believe in the Trinity. Jesus is God. We're, we're Jehovah's Witnesses. I'm like, Jesus said to be his witnesses, not Jehovah's, because we can't get to Jehovah without Jesus. So anyways, um, so what are secondary matters? Everything else? Amber mentioned this in her sermon, how to do a worship service. Here's what a lot of churches argue over and what whole denominations have formed around how's the Holy Spirit work? And how, when and how do we do baptisms and communion? How do we do baptisms and how often do we do it? How do we do communion and how often do we do it? What really happens when we take communion? Does it actually become the literal body and blood of Jesus as it goes down my gullet to my tummy? Or is it metaphorical? These are the things Christians through antiquity have gotten really angry over and divided over. And it grieves the heart of God. If we get to heaven and the Catholics were right that it transubstitution or whatever it's called, what is it called? Somebody help me. I always look to my wife. She's like, I don't know. 
something like that. It's the word that means it changes literally into the blood and body of Jesus as it goes down your throat to your stomach. If we get to heaven and find out they were right, cool, they were right. Who cares? <laughs> right? And yet we want to get divided over it and make whole denominations around it and then call them heretics and say they're going to hell. Be really careful before you call someone a false teacher or a heretic. Make sure you're using the lens of scripture, the judgment of the, the discerning system of scripture. What is that? If you say Jesus is Lord, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And nobody can say Jesus be cursed unless, you know, it's basically from a demon. So if they profess Jesus is Lord, they're Christians. And we need to, we need to accept that. And then we can, we can wrestle through issues, right? But we should not be calling them false teachers and heretics and all the things. So be very careful about that. So I'm not going to get into the rest of that because it gets into, there's just a lot there. But we need to stop judging one another with secondary issues. Yeah, I'm going to move on. All right. Last two things that I want to talk about, strategies or tactics of the devil to um, destroy churches, divide people from one another within the church. Um, mistrust. Mistrust and offense. Mistrust and offense. So let's talk about these in order. I'm going to start with mistrust. This is usually through gossip or slander or the misuse of the gift of discerning of spirits. So the devil will initiate gossip and slander in a church or he'll hijack your gift of discerning of spirits to use it against your brothers and sisters in Christ rather than using it in love. And I'm going to talk about how he does that. But first I want to talk about how important unity is. Why is it that, and again, go listen to Amber's message from last week on unity. It's really good. But why is it that the Bible talks so much about unity, be of one heart and of one mind. Why is it in Jesus' last prayer before the cross, John 17, he says, Father, I want them all to be one as you and I are one, as I'm in you and you're in me and they're in me and, and I'm in them. I want us all to be one. I want them to be one. Jesus' last prayer before the cross. Why is that? Unity is so important. Genesis eleven six. it's the Tower of Babel. The Lord said to himself, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, nothing they plan will be impossible for them. What is God? God is telling us something about the power of human unity. If we work together with one heart and one mind, man, God says we can do anything. Now this was unity in demonic occultism that would separate from God. So it was horrific. And God's like, I ain't gonna let that happen. So that's why he sent them across the earth and caused there to be many languages. You know, people can't work together yet. Why can't people work together yet? Because Jesus hasn't come to redeem and to restore. 
And so if they work together right now before that, they will plunge themselves. They will be very successful in alienating the whole world from God. So when Jesus comes at Pentecost, what does he do? He pours out the Holy Spirit. And what is one of the main sign gifts? Tongues, diverse languages. It's almost every time in scripture it's mentioned, it says speaking in languages, tongues, plural, many languages. That is God redeeming the Tower of Babel. That is God saying through the church, I'm uniting humanity under the name of Jesus and reconciling everybody to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I've destroyed the dividing wall of hostility between God and people through Jesus and through people who come under the name of Jesus, I'm dividing the wall of hostility between nations, tribes, languages, races, ethnicities, and genders, and ages. That's powerful. Jesus is unifying the world under his lordship so we can all be with him in his kingdom forever in heaven. So unity's powerful. So when it comes to the church, it's the opposite of Babel. Now God's, Babel's confusion. God's like, no, I'm bringing light. I'm bringing order. And I want you to be unified in it. Because a divided house can't stand. Because the church will be destroyed. Because the salt will lose its saltiness. Because the light will go out. And the world will go to hell. Unity, how do we have unity? Unity is built on trust. Where there is no trust, there will be no unity, period. Unity is built on trust. So mistrust will destroy unity if left unchecked. I've said before in sermons, mistrust is the seedbed of division. The moment you start not trusting somebody in the church or the church in general or the leadership or, oh, I don't know, you're, that mistrust, this, oh, I don't know about this, that's a beautiful, fertile soil for the enemy to come and sow speculation, lies, rumor, gossip, and slander. And then people come up with all kinds of reasons why they receive it, believe it, and go, that's true. And then tragically, horrifically sometimes, start to say it and spread it around to other people. And that's gossip and slander. So, but it starts with mistrust. Where there is gossip and um, slander, there's deep offense. It will create offense big time, which is what he's trying to do. And we're going to talk about offense more in a minute, but I'm going to go deep into gossip and slander. But when we get to offense, offense is not just, there's been a transgression, there's an injustice that happens all the time. So love covers over a multitude of sins. We better get really good at loving because Jesus said offense is bound to come. It's going to come. It's going to happen. Your, your church family is going to offend you. Let me give you a promise, promise from God. I'm going to offend you. You're going to offend me at times. I'm going to disappoint you. You're going to disappoint me at times. There's no such thing as a perfect church because it's made of churches are people, made up of people who are still learning to follow Jesus. And I've said before, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it because you'll mess it up. 
because you're not perfect, right? That's a little joke. I've also said before, we're not a perfect church, but we're a healthy church. And that's what churches need to strive to be, a healthy church. A healthy church is not a church that never messes up. That's called a perfect church, and they don't exist. A healthy church is a, healthy ch- is a church with a healthy immune system. What do I mean by that? When someone messes up, they deal with it in a very healthy way, which prevents further sickness or damage in the church, which brings, restores people, restores relationships, makes things right, and helps people move forward. That's a healthy church. So we're going to talk about all that. So how does the enemy, let's talk about gossip and slander and mistrust in general, prophetic mistrust, as I say, uh, and how the enemy hijacks that, because that's what he does. Let me show it to you in scripture. We're going to talk about it. So Proverbs eleven thirteen, a gossip betrays a confidence, and a trust, but a trustworthy person keeps a secret. ESV version says, whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets, but he who is trustworthy in spirit keeps a thing covered. I want to point out between translations, the Bible uses the words gossip and slander interchangeably. Okay, Proverbs 20, 19, a gossip betrays a confidence, so avoid anyone who talks too much. The NASB version says, he who goes about as a slanderer reveals secrets, therefore do not associate with a gossip. Again, gossip and slander used interchangeably in the scriptures. Listen to how bad God thinks gossip and slander are. Romans 1 walks through this degradation of society and, and is really, really, really bad. Gossip and slander are included in the list of the degradation of society. And guess, it, it's painting this picture of societies going from bad to worse, and then they do this, and then they do this, and then they do this. Gossip and slander are, are placed after exchanging natural relations for unnatural ones, homosexuality, and, and all that stuff. It says after society gets to that point, he gives them over to a depraved mind to where they start gossiping and slandering all the time. That's what it says. I'll read it to you. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They worshiped and served created things rather than creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, God gave them over to a depraved mind so they do, so they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with evidence Every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. And he's going to list them all out. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. Did you notice gossip and slander are listed as deserving death and coming after sexual perversion and immorality? As as if it's saying this is even worse. Why would he say that? Because it absolutely destroys church families. Um, 1 Corinthians 1 through 3, Paul's writing about divisions in the church. And he's like, I can't even, I would like to address you as spiritual. This is a church full of spiritual gifts, by the way. 
he says, you're not lacking in any spiritual gift. And when you read scripture in the letters of Paul, you, you realize that the Corinthian church is like the most quote unquote spiritually gifted, like miracle signs, wonders, speaking in tongues and all the things, right? That's awesome. That's great for them, right? He says, I can't address you as spiritual, but as worldly because there's divisions among you. And they were arguing about leaders in their church. Who do you follow? I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow, who's the other one? Peter. There we go. Cephas. And then some were like, I follow Jesus. Yeah. But they're like, they're just like arguing all the time. And Paul's like, this is silly. And he's like, this is destroying your church. And he gets the end of chapter three and he goes, so then no more arguing about human leaders because all are yours because Christ is yours. And he's saying all of these guys are in Christ so you can learn from all of them. Remember how the full knowledge of complete understanding comes in Christ. We're unified. And Amber mentioned this last week, but if in our little denomination that has our distinctives, if we're not willing to learn from people different than us, the Christians different than us that are actually better than us at certain things, we will stay limited in our knowledge and understanding of Jesus. And so, man, I've been learning from Catholics lately. They are better at some things in the kingdom than we are. Did you know that? And I've been super blessed by learning from them. That's just an example. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17, though, in the middle of that passage about division in the church, arguing over leaders, arguing over leadership, this is what Paul says. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, he's talking about the church. The church is living stones. It's God's temple, the place where he dwells. If anyone destroys the church of God, God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. <sighs> if you spread bad reports, slander, gossip, you cause division. If you cause division, you're in danger of destroying God's church. If you destroy God's church, God will destroy you. That's what the Bible says. That's strong words and people need warned especially in the culture we live in, because we live in a mocking culture. Our culture mocks everything. And you wanna talk about erroneous beliefs we bring into the church of Jesus Christ, where we mock our president, we mock leaders all day long. And if you participate in that, it will not be long before you start mocking your, your uh, boss and talking bad about them. You start mocking your kids' teachers and talking bad about them. And you start mocking your church leaders and talking bad about them. And God hates it. Preparing for this message this week has messed with me spiritually. I've been filled with anger and it's the zeal of God. I've been praying, zeal for your house consume me. Let zeal for your house consume me. God gets angry over this stuff because it destroys his church. I've also wept this week been brokenhearted because it grieves the heart of God. You want an example of this in scripture? The story of Aaron and Miriam speaking against Moses and his leadership. He had a Cushite wife. They didn't like his wife. That was why. That was the root. Don't like his wife. She's Cushite. She's not one of us. 
it started with that. And then it went to God used us too. Moses thinks he's the only one that hears from God. And God knew if he let that grow, this nation of over a million people would be divided before it even got started. And Miriam would take her group and go start a new nation. And Aaron would take his group. And Moses would be sitting there broken. Because the truth is he didn't do anything wrong. And they misjudged his heart. And they were jealous. And they spoke against him. And God comes down in glory and says, I want to meet with you. He said, when I reveal myself to a person, I speak in dreams and visions. And they had, they had had some of those. He was talking to them. You hear from me? Yes, you're correct. But with Moses, he's special. He's closer to me than you. He hears from me in a greater way. So why were you not afraid to speak against him? And then he just goes back up. And it says he was angry. And he just goes back up. So why were you not afraid to speak against him? And he just, I read one commentary that says rumbles of lightning and thunder probably happened. And then they were like, God's angry. And then he went back up. How'd they know he was angry? I don't know, but they knew. If I'm a little kid and my dad just looks at me and I know he's angry, <laughs> they knew God was angry somehow. <laughs> you know when God's angry. And he goes back up. And then Aaron goes, look at Miriam. Oh no. And she has leprosy. And he looks at Moses, the one they were accusing and, and misjudging and, and maligning with their words and their gospel slander. And he says, pray for her. And Moses goes, God, heal her. And Moses wanted God to heal her right then and there. And he didn't. He goes, no. If her father had spit in her face, she put outside the camp for seven days. That was a cultural reference to a young woman who had so disgraced their family that the father would spit in her face. And that's like, you've done something wrong. And then she would go outside the camp for seven days. So she was put outside the camp for seven days as a form of discipline with leprosy. And that was God saying, this is what you deserve because you almost destroyed this nation, which is the hope of the world, by the way, at that time, because they're going to bring about Jesus. That's how serious this is. And then after seven days, he's a God of grace. He doesn't stay angry forever. He brings her back in. And from that point on, she's humbled and doesn't cause trouble anymore. <laughs> so it's really, really severe and this is where I have a lot of compassion and I want to preach compassionately the rest of this. Most people who engage in it don't know they're doing it. And the reason they don't is because they have a cultural definition of gossip and slander and not a biblical one. So in our culture, we think that Slander or gossip is spreading malicious lies about someone that are totally false. And we're just doing it to ruin their character. And we think, as long as I'm not doing that, then I can do whatever I want. That is not the biblical definition. I've, I've literally heard people say, well, it's not gossip if it's true. Oh, puke face emoji. That's not the biblical, biblical definition. And what a great way to justify your sin by saying that. <sighs> so what is biblical gospel or slander? It's breaking confidence of confession. As Proverbs says, if you repeat to someone else what somebody confided in you, their personal stuff, 
You break confidence, that's gossip or slander. Uh, By the way, even if it's true. So, oh, I've been struggling with pornography. I'm confessing to you. I haven't told anyone. Oh, man, let me pray for you. You know about (laughs) so-and-so? Let me tell you what he's been doing. It's true. But you're slandering his reputation. You're causing people to look down on that person. Why is it slander? Think about this in light of a gospel community. If someone confesses something, it's under the blood. They're forgiven. Let's say they're super repentant. They get set free from strongholds. And from that day on, the rest of their life, they never struggle with that the rest of their life. Could have been anything they confessed. You go and spread that kind of crap to people. Those people who hear that, they don't know that person. 20 years goes by. They're still thinking that person is that. Their worst sin. You've destroyed their reputation. God hates it. It destroys churches. So we can't break confidence. We take that very seriously here. And here's another one. This is where it it gets lesser offenses are just as serious. And here's what I mean by that. Speaking negatively about other people in the church or problems in the church, including leadership or leadership decisions, to people who can't do anything to help fix the problem. So sometimes people talk to you about something in confidence and it's like a problem that needs fixed and helped. And if you go and lament to your friends or whatever, so-and-so is struggling with this and blah, 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 and oh, it's negative or whatever. Is that person involved in this situation? Are they involved in helping fix this? No, then you don't talk to them about it, right? How about when church leadership makes decisions and you're not sure why they made the decisions and you're not sure you like the decisions? Do you just vent to your fellow church person, all that, and then tell them, well, I think here's why they did it, and you fill in the speculative blank, and now you've started to slander and gossip? If that ever happens, what's the proper response? When there's problems in the church, when you see bad things happen, what should you do? Just not talk about it? No, we don't want that. That's not a healthy culture. What's a healthy culture? Talk to someone who can fix the problem. So if you see something bad in the church, whatever area of ministry it is, go to the leader of that area of ministry and tell them, there's this problem. I just saw it. I just witnessed it. We want that kind of feedback because guess why? Sometimes there are problems in the church. And, and a lot of times we leaders don't know about all the problems. So we need to know before we can help fix it. So we love feedback. If you're not sure about a decision, we try to be super transparent and explain everything. But if you're not sure, do not assume, get offended, spread offense, and then leave. (laughs) If you're not sure why a decision was made, ask. Ask the leaders. Ask the ones who made the decision. That's how to properly respond. Psalm 15 says, Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent, who may live on your holy mountain, the one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor, and here it goes a step further, who casts no slur on others. This really convicted me 
many years ago, probably 15 years ago, I was new in ministry in my church in Michigan. I read that psalm one day in my devotion. Those words jumped out. I'm like, hold on. There's a difference between slander, spreading lies about someone, and casting a slur here, or else they wouldn't mention it. What does cast a slur mean? Do you know what cast a slur means? It means speak negatively about anyone for any reason. You want to dwell close with God and have deep communion with God? Don't just not spread slander or gossip about people. Don't speak negatively about people, period. And the Lord deeply convicted me as a mid-20s young green pastor. And that fear of the Lord that came on me in that moment is still on me. And let me give you one example of what it looks like in my life. This is not the only example, but I mean, I, I fear saying anything negative about anyone for any reason, even if it's true. To the point where I've, I've went to the point of there's times I need to warn people about certain things and I don't because I, I know I'll be speaking negative about a person or a situation. And then I get in my prayer calls, I'm like, Lord, should I warn them or not? Oh, I don't want to speak negative. To the point that, here's an example. Joe Biden fell off a bicycle. You probably saw that video. You probably see videos of Joe Biden not being able to talk. Is it okay to have a, an intellectual conversation about who you're going to vote for and you're concerned about the mental capacities of your sitting president? Yes, that's okay. Is it okay to make fun of him, share them, and talk in a deriding way about how stupid or ill-fit he is? For the Christian person, no, that is not okay. And I saw those videos, and I kind of chuckled, and I was like, oh, that's gross. And then you think about people you could send that video to, and then I go, oh, that's grosser. Do I like the policies? No. Am I concerned for his health? I truly, I truly am. I think there's enough evidence for that. Am I going to deride him and, and mock him with people who agree with me? No, I will not. We'll never do that. I will pray for him. Pray for him quite a bit. And I don't care how much you agree with him. If you don't pray for a sitting president, even if they're the opposite of what you want, well, they're the one. They're in charge. So if you, the less you pray for them, the more they're going to get slaughtered and our country's going to go downhill. So even if you got a leader you perceive as bad, you need to pray for them more, <laughs> right? So scripture says, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. Only let what comes out of your mouth be helpful for building up people. Encouragement. Encouragement is a spiritual gift. We prophesy to encourage and build people up. And I had this super convicting thought, and I wrote it in my notes. I wonder what would happen in our churches if we encouraged each other and other churches as much as we talk negatively about them. I think we would see a 180 in the church being built up and in the unity that starts to happen. It's so easy to talk about what we don't agree with or what's negative. So... There's a few exceptions to not tech talking negatively. I've shared one, legitimate problems, but it needs to be dealt with in a proper way with only the person that's involved in helping fix the problem. Sometimes we receive a confession, and this is super rare, by the way, but there's like a crime involved. For example, sexual or physical abuse of a minor. We legally have to report that, and we would report that, but we would do so first informing the person confessing it to us we're not just going to, oh, okay, pray for you. <laughs> Go tell the cops. No. Hey, listen, 
this is really serious. These people need held accountable. We're going to walk with you through this process, but we need to inform and we need to make sure you're safe. And then you walk through them through that process because that's being abused is very traumatic. And then make letting the authorities know and walking through that is very traumatic for the victim. And so those cases, we have to deal with it. And I love Amber said last week, we don't let the devil just have his way and say nothing and only speak positive. No, 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 no. Read the Bible. Church discipline is another example. And especially when a leader sins, the scripture says, 1 Timothy 5.20, but those elders who are sinning, and in the context, it, it, the implication is extremely serious sin. Okay? This isn't an elder or a leader who's like, oh, I'm giving into some temptation in some small ways and I need help. No, we want to have a culture of confession and, and, and help each other overcome things and pray for each other. Absolutely. But this is talking about serious, persistent sin. And they think it's okay and they're persisting in it. You are to reprove before everyone so the others may take warning. Okay? So when you have a leader who sins, unfortunately, if they're like the pastor or a well-known leader in the church, you can't just quietly be like, why don't you quietly disappear and go get healthy? And when the church is like, where'd where'd pastor so-and-so go? (laughs) Well, um, uh, well, let's see. Uh, Well, uh, that's going to create more confusion and mistrust in the church. And they're a leader, and you just have to tell people what's going on. You need to be transparent. I mean, classic example, we, we had a youth pastor in Michigan who committed adultery, um, and that was discovered. And, of course, the leadership talked to him, gave him a, a super gracious severance. We're going to help you transition. We're going to pay for counseling. We're going to basically pay you for six or eight months till you find another job. We're not kicking you out of this church family. We love you. We're going to help your family. We're going to help you in a process of reconciliation. But listen, you're, you're unfit for leadership, right? That's obvious, right? And so, um, you know, the next weekend we had to announce it to the church. No leader loves to do that. We did that. And our church was, was phenomenal and it, it was super healthy and, and went really well. But I heard this one negative comment from someone who was not a very mature believer. I just don't understand why they got announced at the whole church. That's embarrassing for that poor man and for that, you know, this and this and this. What are we supposed to do if something like that happens? You just, the youth pastor's gone. What happened to, he's been here for years. Where'd he go? You know, you have to tell people what's going on. And leadership has a higher, um, what's the, accountability? What's the word? I'm, a higher uh, expectation. There's a word I'm looking for. It's not finding me. Um, there's a higher level of expectation to how much is given, much is required. And we're, we're judged more strictly by God. We have, we have greater influence on people's spirituality. And so it has to be viewed this way. And so God doesn't just let sin persist in his church, you know, but there's gracious ways of dealing with it. A couple more examples of gossip and and slander that I unfortunately witness on a regular basis. People come to me or other leaders in our church or just each other. You know, I'm really concerned about so-and-so. Have you talked to so-and-so about your concerns? And people will sometimes say this to me, and this is what I say. Okay, have you talked to them about that? Well, no, I haven't. I, okay, um, talk to them about it. If that, and this is what I say. If that doesn't go well and you feel more is needed, let me know. And then the three of us will sit down and have a conversation because that's Matthew 18. Other people, uh, another way it happens, I'm concerned about this leadership decision, and I've touched on that. You share that with someone else, and, and you're really not 
trying to figure things out. You're really just expressing your frustration. Um, sharing speculation. And this is where the devil can hijack your prophetic gift. And, and I want to touch on this, especially in our church, because um, I'm just going to be honest with you, in the last year, a whole lot of people have had a major increase in their prophetic discernment. And that's a blessing. That's awesome. That's the gift of discerning of spirits, even. And God, that can, gift can manifest in different ways. You can see, you can hear, you can feel. However, God speaks to you prophetically. Feeling is a big one. And what do I mean by that? You walk in a room and you're like, ooh, I feel some negativity. I feel the devil. I feel bad. And you're like, what is going on? Ooh, them. So-and-so is struggling today. And I know it. Ooh, they got something on them, right? Or, oh, there's something in the church today, right? Okay. That can, can be discerning of spirits. Absolutely. So you're feeling some things. Here's what I've learned in the last year. The feelings are not the discernment. When you, if, and whether the Lord speaks to you, whether you feel it, whether you see it, that's not the discernment. The gift of discerning of spirits is like the thermostat. And I'll use feeling because I think that's the one that most often happens. So you walk in, something's not right. Oh, it's so, oh, oh, they're struggling today. Oh, what's going on? You're feeling some things. So your feelings are a thermostat that's going, they're, they're at like 30 degrees for some reason. And because they're here, it feels like 30 degrees in here, which isn't good. It's too cold. And we like it to be a nice, comfortable 70 degrees. So what's going on here? Something's off. And this is where the devil hijacks the gift of prophetic discerning of spirits, to cause mistrust. You start to try to figure out why so-and-so is struggling. You start to try to figure out why there's warfare in the room today or in the atmosphere. And in the trying to figure out why, you start speculating and being presumptuous, and you think you've come up with the answer. And then tragically, if you kind of don't like so-and-so, kind of wish they weren't part of our church family anyway, then you can weaponize discernment, call it discernment anyways, and use it against them. People can do this in prayer privately with the Lord. Get them, God, get them. Or tragically, they can start to spread. You know, I don't really trust so-and-so. I don't really, I don't feel good about this person. Okay, why do you say that? I have people, I've had people say this to me. Why is that? If all of the answers are pure speculation, I'm sorry that's not valid. You need to go back and pray. And if it is valid in the spirit, you need to pray for the person because that's why God would give you discernment. A quick example, let's say someone is off and everybody feels it, it like every, all the prophetic discerning people are like, oh, the room's weird, oh, something's wrong today, oh, this person's struggling, something's going on here. Let's say they're struggling with pornography addiction. And let's say their heart is, I want out of it, I hate myself, I've never told anyone, and I, I won't tell anyone because I'm afraid that they'll judge me. I'm afraid they'll not like me, I'm afraid they'll reject me. And so I've never told anyone, that's part of the reason I'm still not free. So let's say you're a prophetic discerning person and, oh, something's not right in the room and something's not good. Oh, I think it's happening. And let's say you're like, oh, I bet it's pornography. 
you know, I'm sensing this pornography. Mm. Why would God show you that? Oh, can't trust them. Get them out of the church. Avoid them. Tell other people to warn them because they're, they're a predator. They're this, they're that. That happens in Holy Spirit churches. And it's horrific. Why? Why would God give you discernment? It's to pray for the person, just generally. Sometimes you pray the warfare off, they come back the next week and they're awesome. Why? Because you did your job and you had their back and you prayed for them. Other times, and this has happened to me, I can probably count on one hand the number of times this has happened to me. I'm praying for someone, I'm like, something ain't right here. And the Lord just flat out tells me what's going on. Tells me. You want to talk, it ain't no feeling. It's like, it is this issue, boom, right now. Did he give me that to judge them? To shame them? No, he, did, he gave me that to help them. And the number of times that's happened, I can count on one hand. And how do I handle that? Um, can I just ask you a question? Are you struggling with this right now? <gasps> okay, thought so. Here's how we deal with that. Let me help you. It's not to go tell other people about it, to stay away from them. That's gross. That's wrong. That is mistrust masquerading as discernment. It's not, the mistrust is not the discernment. The feelings aren't the discernment. The discernment is a judgment you make. To discern means to judge and make a decision. What is going on here? And if something just feels off, don't fill in with speculation. That's where the devil loves to come and fill in his story to cause you to respond wrongly. So, Man, I got so many more notes, and, and we're, we're over time already. So I'll just say this. With all that, when that stuff does happen, offense is created. When people find out, because gossip and slander are a form of betrayal, and betrayal is the most severe form of trauma that someone can experience. There's five types of trauma. Betrayal is the worst kind. When someone you know, love, and trust betrays you. And yeah, like in a marriage, infidelity is, is super severe. And maybe telling a little speculation about someone, maybe that's not as severe, but it's still a form of betrayal. So it fractures relationships. People get offended. And I'll say, quote unquote, rightly so. So now when someone's offended, the devil uses offense to, the spirit of offense. People get offended when offenses happen. And rightly so. Now there needs to be a process of repentance and reconciliation and forgiveness and healing to right that offense. And if that process doesn't happen, people stay in offense. And a spirit of offense, when we say in a prophetic Holy Spirit church, a spirit of offense, that's a spirit keeping you from the process of reconciliation. So that reconciliation and restoration don't happen so that the church is destroyed, people leave. People leave, church falls apart. And that's what the devil wants. That's his end goal. To stay in offense. To keep people in pride. Offense partners with a spirit of pride. I was hurt and I have a legitimate reason to never forgive them. To never seek reconciliation. To never have that conversation. And to leave the church. And then to tell everybody what happened to me. And I'll call it church hurt. And I'm just going to tell you, our culture throws around the word church hurt so loosely. 
This has happened to me many times. I, I, pastors got war stories for days about people that were legitimately doing things that were bad or wrong or hurting, gossiping, slandering, living in sin, so on and so forth. You have a compassionate conversation with them. They get super offended, leave the church, and then tell everybody out in the community how you were spiritually abusive to them because you were manipulating them and you were doing all these things. Spiritual abuse is a real thing if it's legitimate and it's traumatic. You know, a pastor sexually abusing a congregant member, horrific. A pastor stealing money, taking advantage of the church, horrific stuff. A pastor teaching cult-like beliefs that keep people in bondage. And if you ever leave here, you'll go to hell and you can't separate you from your family and friends. Horrible spiritual abuse. Yes, but pastors who love you come to you and going, what you're doing is not good and we need to have a little conversation here and, and I love you and, and they're not mean, they're, not, they're super gracious about it. And people in their pride don't want to repent and then they go out and call it spiritual abuse. It's, it's silly, it's silly. And so in light of that, I would say be very careful when you're hearing when somebody's confiding in you, you're a confidant for someone who is deeply hurt, which means they're deeply offended. Be very careful with that. You want to care for them. You want to be compassionate with them. But you need to be very careful not to partner with their offense. And I've learned this from pastoral counseling for 15 years. And you, you, one marriage partner comes to you and dumps on you and tells you how horrific things are and what the other person's doing. And you can partner with their offense and go, oh, well, wait till I talk to us. I can't believe they would talk to you. I can't believe they would treat you this way, right? Then you get in the counseling session and the, then you hear the other person's side of the story. <laughs> and you're like, oh. <laughs> See, person one didn't tell me all the stuff that they were doing to offend their marriage partner. Isn't that funny? When we're offended, we, we only tell the side of the story where we got hurt where things went bad for us. And I've learned there's, there's always two sides of the story. Proverbs 18, 17 says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes or his neighbor comes and cross-examines him or says, oh, really, did I really say that? What about this that you did? Oh, <laughs> now there's two sides of the story. So what is God, the weapons of our warfare, God's strategia that God has given us to deal with all of this and to, I'll just say, overcome offense? Gossip and slander are a form of offense, as I've said. There's other offenses that can happen in church. Lots, I mean, we could go on all day talking about the types, ways we could all offend one another. So what's God's solution? Well, the, the solution is love that covers over a multitude of sins. Love's not just a feeling. And here's what I wrote in my notes. Love in action that pursues, one, repairing conversations, and two, living differently to avoid the offenses in the future. That type of love in action is the immune system of the church. Offenses are bound to come. When they do come, we also don't just go, well, let's all love and overlook everything and never deal with it. No, 
There need to be repairing conversations to rebuild trust, to help people, to disciple people in repentance and to disciple them in forgiveness and to help get a plan together of how are we going to make sure this never happens again? That's what we need to be doing as believers. And here's the deal. God is love and love always pursues reconciliation. Always. This just really convicted me this week. Jesus was the one betrayed. And they all abandoned. And he ended up on a cross. He was the one offended. The offense was done against him by his own disciples. All of them. And yet in John 21, he was the one pursuing a reconciliatory conversation with all the disciples, but especially Peter, the one who harmed him the most. That is love. Love is most powerful and transformative when there has been an offense. Luke 6, 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you love people who are always good to you and never offended you, that's easy. Even sinful people who don't know God do that. But when you choose to still love someone who has hurt you or offended you and mistreated you and sinned against you and annoyed you, that is when you start to love like God. The gospel does not say while we were perfect and because we were good, God loved us in Romans 5.8. It says while we were still sinners, God loved us. And he pursued us. And when his disciples all fell away, after it was over, he went to them to repair a relationship because he knew they needed it. Or they would always be full of shame and always be running and stay, oh, any of you ever transgressed, hurt someone? And then you start thinking, you feel so bad about it. You're like, I'm, I'm not going to go to that church or I'm not going to go around them anymore because I know what I did to them. And if I were them, I wouldn't want to see me. So I'm just going to stay away. That's your shame talking, not the gospel. The gospel, Jesus in you, is like, go to them, go to them, go to them. Tell, why don't you tell them you feel that way? <laughs> Love always pursues reconciliation. And Gary Chapman, who's a really well-known Christian counselor, points out in his book, When Sorry is Not Enough, that, the min that so many times marriages and families and friendships and churches fall apart, not because there are disagreements and sin and mistakes, because that's going to happen. We should expect it and be ready for it. But rather, our relationships fall apart so often because people don't know how to reconcile and repair the relationship and rebuild trust. And that's what churches need to get really good at. So what does that look like? Matthew 5 and Matthew 18. And I'll summarize it like this. Matthew 5 says, if you're at the altar giving a gift... And you realize, you remember, someone else has an offense against you. So you're at church and you remember, they're offended at me because I did something. I'm the offender. I'm the one who did something wrong. If you remember that at church, trying to connect with God, you should leave church, leave your gift at the altar, and go reconcile with them. Tell them you're sorry and seek, seek their forgiveness to be reconciled. Then you jump to Matthew 18 and it says, if a brother or sister sins against you, go and point out their fault, key phrase here, just between the two of you. 
If they don't listen, take one or two others along. If they don't listen to that, then tell it to the church. And if they still refuse to listen to the whole church, then treat them as you would a, a, a pagan or tax collector, which means do not associate with, with them. Here's what I learned through studying those passages. That's the victim. If your brother or sister sins against you, you're the victim. What's God's word say? Go to them. If you're at the altar offering your gift and you remember you've done something wrong to offend someone, what's the word of God say? Go to them. So whether you're the victim or the offender, God says, go to them. Pursue reconciliation. And this is what we need to be doing. A reconciliatory repairing conversation. The offender needs to say, I'm sorry, I'm wrong, and here's my plan to change and not do this again. The person who was offended needs to say, I forgive you. And if you're both Christians, that needs to happen. In pastoral counseling, this is how we lead people to do this. And then we're going to pray through this together and pray through that together and pray. And I'm giving some marriage advice right now, too. This needs to happen. And we need to live by this. So to sum all this up, We need the truth of God's word. It's a weapon of our warfare to protect us from the strategies of the enemy, the doctrines of demons. We need spiritual gifts in practice to keep us from being disabled and impotent in our faith. And we need to pursue love and relationship and reconciliation at all times to keep us from being destroyed through mistrust and division. John 13, 34 and 35, Jesus said, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. Love, 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 love. Not just nice love that just, I'm just going to forget about it. A love that pursues to restore trust because trust is the foundation of unity. And unity is the strength of the church. So let's pray and ask God for that. Amen? God, I just thank you right now for this knowledge and wisdom and truth that your word gives us. And I just pray right now, Lord, that you would always keep our church humble, close to your heart, Jesus. If we ever stray into beliefs or ways of believing or ways of practicing faith that are not of you or just slightly off even that you would correct us and you would give us ears, that you would help us to be the wise people that love correction, as Proverbs said, a wise person loves correction because they know it's going to be, it's going to help them in the end. And if you correct a wise person, they will be wiser still. You correct a fool, they'll just mock you. We don't want to be fools, God. We want... We want your correction when we need it. So we thank you for that. Your loving correction. God, I just pray that you give us a spirit of unity and help us be of one mind and one heart with one another. I pray that you would help us to always encourage one another and outdo one another in showing honor 
to protect us from mistrust. Your word says love always trusts. I pray that you would help us trust one another, God. Always trusting means you give the benefit of the doubt. When you don't know the full story, you're going to choose to trust and not to mistrust and speculate. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to trust. Help us to trust you when we don't know the full story, when we don't know what you're doing, when we're like, why, God? Help us to trust you and not agree with the enemy's accusations. Help us to trust one another when we don't know the full story. And God, I just pray right now in the name of Jesus for repentance in this place of any time we've ever partnered with accusation, mistrust, gossip, slander, the enemy hijacking our prophetic gifts that you've given us, prophetic gossip. We just repent of all that. We renounce it in Jesus' name. We don't want to agree or participate with that anymore. Jesus, forgive us for this, God. So shed your light in our hearts to each one. Man, if you tame the tongue, you've mastered everything, you know, James says, and nobody can tame it. And so we all have done this. We all have, we all have sinned against you, Jesus, by speculating about another believer or by participating with mistrust or gossip or slander or offense or refusing to forgive or refusing to repent. So I just pray for humility, God. I pray for repentance. When offenses come, I pray for your spirit of grace that we can just forgive that we can forgive. I pray for a spirit of repentance to come over this church and I pray for a spirit of forgiveness to come over this church. In Jesus' mighty name. Offenses will come, God. I pray, Jesus, you will help us to love deeply from the heart because love covers over a multitude of sins. Because when we love and we're reconciled, our relationship grows even stronger with that person after it's over. When we offended you, Jesus, and then you forgave us and you pursued us and we came into a relation, now our relation with you is even stronger, not in spite of our offenses, but because of them and because of your grace and because of the healing and because we know that we could do anything and you'll still love us and we can always run back to you. And I pray that we as believers would get that love right there deep down in our hearts that we would never write anyone off. And you said, Jesus, if your brother comes to you seven times in a day, Peter asked, you said not seven, but 70 times seven in one day. If they come to you and, and confess something that they did wrong to you, 70 times seven times in a day, that's how many times in one day you should forgive them, which is crazy. That's, that's a hyperbole to say, if your brother's willing to repent, you need to be willing to forgive every time. So Jesus, that's your heart for us. That's the love of God. And I pray we get the love of God in us because the devil's really good and he entices us. He's good at what he does and we all give in to him at one time or another. Offenses are bound to come, but your love is what covers over even the mistakes. And that's the healthy immune system in a church is our love and our grace for one another. So Jesus, I pray that you would help our church to be healthy and to be robust and have a healthy immune system. I pray for a, such a spirit of honor and confidentiality in this church that we not only guard uh, our own honor, your honor, we guard one another's honor. I pray when people 
are saying to us, like, like speaking gossip or slander or, or just speculation to us about situations or other people, we stop them and go, hey, listen, I don't, that's speculation. I don't want to hear that. that don't, I don't want to, let's not talk about that. I'm just going to stop you right. You know, have you talked to them about this? Because I don't want to talk to you about it if you haven't talked to them. I pray for that courage and boldness in this church to honor one another to that degree. To, not, to never speak negatively about each other, but to only speak what is helpful for building one another up. I ask for that, God, the spirit of honor in this place. Restore our honor. Restore our honor for you, for one another, God. And I just thank you for that in Jesus' mighty name. And we love you, Lord. Thank you for our time together tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.